Welcome to the podcast, episode 93. Podcast, episode 93. Thanks for joining us. So I want to talk a little bit about um, immigration and refugees. So uh, what is a biblical um, response? What should a biblical response be to the problem of refugees, the, you know, people who are fleeing some horrendous situation in their home country and they show up on, they show up on our border and, or, or people who are immigrating not because their lives are threatened but simply because they believe and believe rightly that their family would have much better opportunities here and they just show up, show up on our border or they come across the border and here they are. Now, one of the things that I would like Christians to start doing when we, when we address these, these sorts of issues is recognize that there are um, economy of scale issues. So it, you can't simply take the parable of the Good Samaritan and say, so here you're, you're, you're traveling along the road and you see a guy beat up by the side of the road uh, and you apply oil and wine to his wounds and you load him on the donkey and do just what Jesus said to do in the parable and you take him to the inn and you give two coins to the innkeeper to take care of him until you return. And so people say, see, that's what we ought to do. Well, I, let, me, um, let me change the parable. Let's say you're going down that same road with your same donkey and you come across not one beat up guy, but there's just been a great battle and you come across 50,000 wounded men lying by the side of the road. There's been a great battle and there are men on the point of death, men crawling around, men barely wounded. You know, you've got every, every uh, known medical uh, calamity that is there, dead men, dying men, scraped men, bruised men, all right, and you've got one donkey and your two coins. Now what? What is, what is the uh, obligation that Christians have if the ship sinks and there are a thousand people in the water and there are ten people in the rowboat? Um, do you load all 1,000 people in the rowboat and sink the rowboat? Is that what you do? Is that what? You... Now, I'm not trying to point to um, an easy answer. Of course, this is what you do or that what you do. I'm simply saying that it is not hard in this fallen world to envision a situation where the system is just simply overloaded. You can't take that many in. You can't assimilate them. You can't take care of them. You don't have the, you don't have the resources now. Everything else, be, you know, the, the mutatis mutandis, everything else being adjusted for, everything else being equal. If you come across someone that you're, that you're in a position to help and they're in need of help, what does the, the parable of the Good Samaritan teach us? Well, it teaches us that we should not let things like ethnic differences or uh, geographical differences or political allegiances stand in our way of of helping this person. But you simply can't do what you can't do. Let me go over that again. You can't do what you're not able to do. If someone says, well, that's just, you're just evading the force of the Lord's teaching. You're just evading scripture. And I would say to them, so why don't you write a check 
to the federal government to cover all of our expenses on the southern border. They would say, I don't have that kind of money. I don't I don't have that I don't have the resources to do that. And I'd say, ah, so you're saying you can't do what you can't do, right? We sometimes have a faith in um, the state, which shows that we have let the state quietly assume the place of God, because we think that just as God will never run out, so the state will never run out. That's one of the things that is so disheartening about all of these uh, all of these things is that we it's if if someone said hey uh, the state has a hundred billion dollars in its uh, treasury and we've come across this one guy by the side of the road who's kind of beat up can we afford as a society to take care of this guy well that's one you know the that's a very different issue than the issue of can we write a check for a trillion dollars? Can we take care of every need that exists? And the answer is no. But if there's a background assumption that, of course, the government will never run out, of course, the government can always print more money, of course, there will always be resources there. And this is where the, this kind of magical pixie dust thinking is where the socialists are getting their energy. Well, of course, you just you just print the money. Of course, you just uh, appeal to the resources because your intentions are so pure and the money will just simply appear. Well, underneath that, underneath that assumption that the state cannot run out of resources is the assumption that the state is God. If you think that the state is a finite creaturely institution, well, of course it could run out. You know, take the the gross domestic uh, product of a country. Uh, let's say let's pick a small country and and say that the uh, uh, the gross domestic product is you know a uh, hundred million dollars. If you ask them to buy something that is worth one thousand billion dollars or a trillion dollars, that country is going to run out. Why? because they're not God. The state is not God. And if you say, well, all we have to do is configure our southern border with, um, you know, have the policies uh, full of sweetness and light and just say, we, we should accept everybody who wants to come. We should welcome everybody who wants to come. We should do just kick the gates open and come one, come all. And we don't need to worry about where the money's coming from. Why? If you don't worry about where the money's coming from, if you don't worry about how these people can assimilate or how these people can be taken care of, if that doesn't occur to you or you dismiss it with a wave of your hand, that means that you're an idolater. It means that you believe that the state is God. Because only, only God, only the true God, only the God of heaven and earth is the one who will never run out. So my book review um, this go round is um, by a gent named Theodore Dalrymple. That's his pen name. I've, I don't know his real name, but I've read a number of his books. He wrote Life at the Bottom, which I believe I've reviewed 
here before. He wrote a book called Our Culture, What's Left of It. He also wrote the book I'm reviewing here, which is um, got the quite striking title of Romancing Opiates. Romancing Opiates. Now, what's the basically, what's the point of this book? He, he goes, uh, he basically argues that there is a mythology that surrounds the use of opiates in our culture, in Western culture, and it goes back to the 1700s. And he says this, this mythology has taken deep root, and, it's the, and this romancing of opiates is the idea that the solitary, misunderstood, persecuted artist in a garret— is the one who who uses opiates. So um, when someone is, uh, and you might call it part of the you know the Lord Byron problem or the um, where we romantic romanticize all kinds of misbehavior, not just misbehavior with drugs. But if someone kicks the habit, let's say someone goes cold turkey, and and kicks the habit, they they no longer are um, taking opiates. We call them, our, our tendency is for our culture to call that person heroic. It's, it's a great battle. They got the monkey off their back. They did something marvelous. And when they're addicted to these drugs, they're, because they're artists, they're also doing something marvelous. Um, now, uh, Dalrymple worked as a, in an inner city hospital in London for many years and, and dealt with a number of addicts. And, and he said, basically... Far from uh, being this heroic struggle, um, a battle between light and darkness, he said going cold turkey, coming off of an addiction to drugs, he said is equivalent to a bad case of the flu. But nobody thinks that a bad case of the flu is heroic. Why would we think you're just sick as a dog for a couple of days? And he said that's what it's like. But we have, um, we have grown accustomed to thinking of opiates in a romanticized way. And, we, of course, we can only do this from uh, an appropriate distance. Uh, if you get too close to it, then the, the, the reality of all of it comes crashing in on you. But we have been far too tolerant of drug abuse in the artistic community because this is what we think artists are somehow supposed to do. Um, this book is not a big uh, doorstopper of a book. It's it's fairly fairly short and to the point. Uh, anybody who works in uh, anybody who works with um, down and outers, anybody who works in an inner city um, ministry, anybody who works with those who are addicted, I think would be. Um, well served to get a copy of this book and to to read it. Um, Dalrymple is not writing from a Christian perspective, but I also happen to think that he needs to watch his step because I think he's in danger of becoming a Christian. It's a really, really good book. So, Martiology uh, for Plodcast, episode 93. Scripture describes for us the sin of being Antichrist, the Greek word being antichristos, antichristos. There are four uses of the word in 1 John and one in 2 John, and that's it for the whole Bible. Okay, so antichristos 
is used four times in 1 John and once in 2 John. And that covers it for the entire Bible. Now, this is surprising to many. The Antichrist is not found in the book of Revelation at all. Let me say that again. The Antichrist is not found in the book of Revelation at all. He's not there. Uh, the recipients of John's letter had heard that the Antichrist was going to come. And indeed, John says many Antichrists had already come. That's 1 John 2, 18. The Antichrist is defined as one who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 2, 22. All right, so once in verse 18, once in verse 22. The spirit of Antichrist is a refusal to confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. All right, so when you refuse to confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, that's 1 John 4, 3, that's the spirit of Antichrist. And then the same thing is said again in 2 John 1, 7. The spirit of deception and Antichrist is a rejection of Jesus come in the flesh. All right, so there it is. Uh, so what is the sin of being an Antichrist? What sin is involved? Now, through this goes back to my point about the book of Revelation. Through long-standing misunderstandings about eschatology, the definition of this sin has gotten almost completely distorted. A common understanding is to see the Antichrist and the beast as the same character out of poorly written end times novels. But this is not the case at all. In Scripture, in Scripture, you see this in the book of Daniel, you see it in the book of Revelation. In Scripture, a beast is a civil ruler, like an emperor or a king, a civil ruler persecuting the church. An antichrist is a false teacher from within the church, one who is infected with all the latest ideational leprosy. For a beast, if you wanted to, to look at modern history for an example of um, each, for a beast, think Stalin, Hitler. For an ancient example, think Nero um, so, or Diocletian. So for a beast, you think Stalin, Hitler, Nero, or Diocletian. For an antichrist, think rather of a mild, soft-spoken Anglican bishop. He's one who denies that Jesus was God enfleshed. Do you believe that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us? Do you believe that Jesus was the incarnate God Almighty? Was, was Jesus Jehovah in the flesh? And if the Anglican bishop says no, then that is Antichrist. And that is the Antichrist that John's talking about in the one place in 2 John and the three places in 1 John. That's the kind of teacher, the mild, soft-spoken, false teacher who denies the identity of Jesus from within the church. That is Antichrist. So the Antichrist has nothing whatever to do with the beast. The beast of Revelation, it, don't fall into the trap of thinking if the beast of Revelation is persecuting the church, then that means he's against the church, against Christ, anti-Christ. Yeah, he's he's an antichrist in that sense in the, in the way that every sin is antichrist. But John's use of it in 1 John and 2 John is a specialized use of it. John is John is talking about um something quite uh distinctive and that is a a peculiar form of false teaching.
You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.